And if you'd like to uh, pick up your Bibles and have page 884 open, and also you might find it helpful to have the outline on uh, the back of the song sheet today as well to follow through. We're not going to read the passage now, it's 49 verses long, but I'm going to refer to it and read vast chunks of it as we go uh, through. So, um, just to get our bearings, um, the book of Daniel covers the first part of a period called the Exile, which lasted for about 70 years and was really God's way of disciplining his people, of bringing them back to himself. They'd gone walkabout spiritually, drifted quite a long way away from their God, and eventually his patience ran out, and he eventually acted to discipline them. And so, uh, first of all, the Jews came under the, uh, really, control of the Babylonians in 612, when the Babylonians defeated the previous top dog of that part of the world, the Assyrians. And uh, then, in 605, when they defeated the Egyptians, who were the sort of next in the pecking order, that um, made the whole place completely everywhere from the borders of Egypt right across to the borders of what today would be Pakistan, oh, Afghanistan, was the area covered by the Babylonian Empire. And having uh, got to that position, then what we have is that um, Daniel, the, the talented bunch of young people, were carted off to Babylon because there they would, you know, they, they picked the best of the bunch. They took them so that they would go to the kind of civil service college in Babylon. They would be trained and then they would be part of the divide and rule way of running an empire. They would be sent to run some part of the empire, not of course uh, where they came from, but somewhere where they didn't. That's how they did it. And uh, then... Later, um, in 597, when Jerusalem was kind of really uh, taken by um, Nebuchadnezzar II, then prophets like Ezekiel and another 10,000 people were taken into exile. And then about 10 years later, when Nebuchadnezzar completely smashed uh, Jerusalem, destroyed the city, walls, destroyed the temple, many more people were carried off into exile, where they stayed for 70 years. And then later on, when uh, they've come to their senses, uh, then God, and the Babylonians would have got too big for their boots, that God uh, humbled the Babylonians by allowing the Persians to defeat them in 539. 50,000 return under Zerubbabel. The temple is eventually rebuilt. Later, Ezra who has a book named after him in the Old Testament. He arrived, the prophet Malachi was around at that time, 460 BC, the last book of the Old Testament. And Nehemiah, the governor, eventually rebuilt the city walls. So that gives you some idea of the expanse of the Empire. Now, when these people who had been brought up to think and believe rightly that they were the people of God, they were his special people, if they kind of read their scriptures, they would have realized that he had a particularly uh, special international uh, plan for them. But uh, here they are in exile, 
in a foreign land by the rivers of Babylon. And doubtless they would have been, to some extent, devastated. Their world had fallen apart. They would have asked themselves, has their God abandoned them? Was he weaker than other gods? Was he in fact for real at all? Away from their home in a strange land, was there any future hope for them? Now the Jews in exile are a very good lead for us as the people of God living in what the Bible would call an alien land, a strange land, a place which is not our home, where we can at times feel uncomfortable. And the context for old Nebuchadnezzar was that he had had an astonishingly fast rise to power. In World War II terms, it would be of blitzkrieg proportions, a remarkable political and military achievement. And just to give you some impression of that, there's a picture. Um, Baghdad is in the sort of top distance, but in the forefront is partly reconstructed but it gives you some idea of the size and scale of Babylon. Here's an artist's impression of the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, depicting Nebuchadnezzar's wealth and splendor, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Imagine for a moment the cost and the power that lies behind this achievement architecturally. But behind great men, there may well lie a high degree of insecurity. Not only did empires rise and fall, but dynasties within empires were prone to rapid change, not, of course, by the ballot, but by the coup d'etat. The great man was watching his back all the time. And it's often the case that what preoccupies us features in our dreams. And maybe this dream that he has was precipitated by such personal insecurity. Well, more artists' impressions of uh, the scale of Babylon and the, uh, the might of his army. All this would require serious money and significant power. You see, he would have travelled a long way. There's elephants in the picture, which he would doubtless have got from uh, India. And just the whole kind of splendour of an entry into a particular room. Or a kind of um, map, an, an aerial view by a kind of imaginary drone of Babylon with the river flowing through the middle and its famous hanging gardens there by the river itself. Well, the chapter is all about this uh, dream. And here we have a picture of the Colossus that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of, with a head of gold, with chest and arms of silver, with a stomach of brass, with legs of iron, and with feet of iron and clay. Maybe this had something to say about his concern for his own future. So let's turn to this dream. There's a world of difference between astronomy and astrology. Astronomy assumes an orderly universe that behaves in certain predictable ways. Astrology assumes the world to be chaotic and capricious and resorts to superstitious nonsense to discern the future. With astronomy, you can work out an accurate and predictable calendar. With astrology, you are at the mercy of the charlatan. Nebuchadnezzar had twigged this. You see, if he shared his dream 
with them, his uh, wise men or magi, from which of course we get magic, if he shared his dream with them, how was he to know that their interpretation of the dream was accurate? They could spin him any old nonsense. He couldn't be sure. And certainty is what he is after. So this is what we have here, verse 5. Have a look. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and then interpret it for me. In other words, if these guys claim to have supernatural powers, then they should have no difficulty in knowing what his dream was, as well as interpreting it for him, making sense of it, understanding it for him. He's pretty smart. This is a pretty foolproof way. Well, their reaction is they try and buy time, verses 7 and 8. But the king's having none of it, verse 9. Tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. They've been rumbled, of course. They protest, verse 10. There's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among men. A great touch of irony here, as we'll see. The true God will reveal it, and he is well and truly with men like Daniel who will do so. Well, the king is fed up with these freewheelers. They've been on his payroll for yonks. And when he really wants them to earn their keep, they say it's too hard. So he says, literally, you're useless. You're fired. The furnace, as chapter 3 reveals, was one of his preferred methods of execution. Verse 12. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon, so the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death, which is a bit unfortunate and a bit unfair for Dan and co, since there's no indication that they'd been inquired of by the king. But like Lord Sugar, he's hacked off by the lot of them. So they're all out. Well, Dan and co hear this, and, but they don't panic like their contemporaries. But they do kind of agree with them that no one can reveal it to the king except the gods. They're calm because they have faith in the one true God. He can tell them not only what the dream means, but what it is. Verse 17, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, 
Praise be to the, the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and disposes them. Um, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells within him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And Dan goes to the king, and the king asks Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Verse 27, Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Only God, you see, can reveal us mysteries, which is a technical term later used of a riddle which needs God's explanation, or in the New Testament sense of something hidden, known only to God inaccessible to us, but which he chooses to share with us. Dan says he only knows what the dream is because God, the revealer of mysteries, has told him. He's not got any special powers or chance or whatever. Nebuchadnezzar has had the dream and Daniel has had it both revealed to him and he has been granted the interpretation of it so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Now, having amazingly been able to tell the king the dream, the king is certain to accept the accuracy of the interpretation to which we now turn. Now, this dream foretold which kingdoms would rule the world in succession, starting with the present time, Babylon, which is represented by the head of gold. And the Babylonian Empire was between 612 and 539 BC. And then the Medo-Persian Empire arose, represented by the chest and arms of silver. And they were top dog between 539 and 331. Then the Greeks, under Alexander the Great, represented by the stomach of brass, were in power for for this period until 146 BC. And then pagan Rome arose, represented by the legs of iron. And they had an empire which ruled for, what, 550 years. And the pagan Roman Empire was fractured between east and west and subsequently collapsed. And all these and subsequent empires have a fundamental precarious foundation of clay and iron. But God's eternal kingdom has begun to emerge during the time of the Roman Empire and is represented by the, stut, the, the stone cut without hands. 
So during the time of the Roman Empire, a new kingdom emerges and his kingdom replaces all other kingdoms. Verse 34. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. In the time of those kings, the Roman governors, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. Well, he's pretty impressed. After all, he is the head of gold. Verse 38. And he's pretty relieved because all these changes are going to come after his day. Verse 39. He is totally gobsmacked. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honour and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of kings, and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. He didn't immediately abandon his polytheism, but whoever Daniel's God was, he certainly won up on all the other gods that Nebuchadnezzar may have been aware of. And he quite literally prostrates himself. He couldn't really do anything else. Daniel has accurately told him the dream. He is, if you like, he could, it's like he, he was able to read his mind. But of course, that isn't how he knew. He knew because the God of heaven told him what was in Nebuchadnezzar's head. And so Nebuchadnezzar could take on board the explanation. He's been impressed by the miracle of knowledge and he buys the interpretation that the dream is from God and the interpretation is from God and note it's not the dream that is revelation. If you dreamt that, like the king and his astrologers, you'd be none the wiser. What it needs is the divine commentary. And that's what God revealed to Daniel. And Daniel has delivered it to the king. There was no other way of knowing. So Daniel and his chums are rewarded by being appointed to high office. And now it's the kingdom, the new kingdom, the divine kingdom, the empire of the sun that I'd like to focus our, our attention on. It's not the rise and fall of empires over the ensuing 1,000 years and beyond which is important. It is the arrival and nature 
of the kingdom of God, which is the most significant event predicted. Verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. Well, when is it said to appear? Well, verse 44, in the time of those kings, in the days of the Roman emperors, whose empire was at its zenith, its high point, in the reign of Caesar Augustus, when, incidentally, the Lord Jesus Christ was born. And within the space of 50 years, his kingdom, understood to be his rule in the lives of his followers, had spread throughout most of the known world. How was it to arise? Well, it was foretold that a rock was cut out, but not by human hands, which would smash to smithereens this vast image. God himself would set up this new empire without the use of human military or political force. And this has been remarkably fulfilled in the establishment of Christ's rule over the world. The first 11 apostles were pretty ordinary guys, nothing much special about them. True, the 12th, the apostle Paul, was pretty smart, but he downplayed his natural brilliance, preferring to highlight the folly of the gospel rather than the wisdom of the world, by which he was advocating divine rather than human wisdom, rather than being in any way anti-intellectual. They had neither the politicians nor the judiciary on their side. They were expressly forbidden to use the sword to advance their cause, and yet they advanced. They shed light where there was darkness and knowledge in the face of ignorance and superstition. Verse 34, it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away leaving a, without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. They captured by explanation and example the hearts and minds of millions and the rule of Christ advanced. A.N. William Wilson is a well-known broadsheet journalist and occasional broadcaster. This is what he wrote about 10 years ago. It's quite a long uh, passage, but listen carefully, it's a benefit. He says, for much of my life, I too have been one of those who did not believe. It was in my young manhood that I began to wonder how much of the Easter story I accepted. And in my thirties, I lost any religious belief whatsoever. Like many people who lost faith, I felt anger with myself for having been conned by such a story. I began to rail against Christianity and wrote a book entitled Jesus, which endeavoured to establish that he had been no more than a messianic prophet who had well and truly failed and died. Like most educated people in Britain and Northern Europe, I was born in 1950, 
I've grown up in a culture that is overwhelmingly secular and anti-religious. The universities, broadcasters and media generally are not merely non-religious, they are positively anti. To my shame, I believe it was this that made me lose faith and heart in my youth. It felt so uncool to be religious. With the mentality of a child in the playground, I felt at some visceral level that being religious was unsexy, like having spots and wearing specks. For 10 or 15 of my middle years, I too was one of the mockers. But as time passed, I found myself going back to church, although at first only as a fellow traveller with the believers, not as one who shared the faith that Jesus had truly risen from the grave. Sometime over the past five or six years, I could not tell you exactly when, I found that I had changed when I took part in the procession last Sunday and heard the gospel being chanted, he's quite high church, if not Roman Catholic, I think, I assented to it with complete simplicity. My own return to faith has surprised no one more than myself. Why did I return to it? Partially, perhaps, it is no more than the confidence I had gained with age. Rather than being cowed by them, I relish the notion that by asserting a belief in the risen Christ, I am defying all the liberal clever clogs on the block, cutting-edge novelists such as Martin Amis, foul-mouthed, self-satisfied TV presenters such as Jonathan Ross and Joe Brand, and the smug, tireless architects of so much television output. He has a certain personality. But there is more to it than that. My belief has come about in a large measure because of the lives and examples of people I have known. Not the famous, not saints, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in the light of the resurrection story or in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. The Easter story answers their questions about the spiritual aspects of humanity. It changes people's lives because it helps us understand that we, like Jesus, are born as spiritual beings. Every inner prompting of conscience, every glimmering sense of beauty, every response we make to music, every experience we have of love, whether of physical love, sexual love, family love or the love of friends, and every experience of bereavement reminds us of, the fact, of this fact about ourselves. So he's a contemporary example of the new kingdom of Christ advancing one by one today. Well, back to the dream. Each of these four empires was larger than its predecessor. The Medes and the Persians, larger than the Babylonians. Alexander's Greek Empire stretched from India right back to Greece. And as the Roman Empire took over, whilst it didn't extend as far to the east, it extended considerably further to the west to include our forebears who were here. The Roman Empire, which had tried to smash the church, was itself smashed as predicted by the dreadful uprising of the Huns, the Goths and the Visigoths. 
The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, verse 35, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the earth. And true to God's word, the empire of his son extends throughout the whole world, not just over the bodies of human beings, but over their hearts and minds. And all this not by force, but by persuasion and example and explanation. The Roman Empire has long gone, but Christ's kingdom grows by, I think, 70,000 a day is the latest estimate I've read. Well, for how long? Well, certainly for over 550 years, longer than the Roman Empire, because it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will endure forever itself. So what is there in this for us to take away from this chapter of Scripture? Well, the answer is to the question, who is in charge? People today wonder if anybody is. Politicians don't seem to be. No further comment. Um, We still have the same problems as ever. The military doesn't seem to be. We, We can nuke the world out of existence, but we have a heck of a job trying to subdue a few Taliban in the hills of Afghanistan. The police don't seem to be. I mean, we can see about, we can see what's going on in just about anywhere in the world, thanks to sort of Google, but we can't stop drug runners. And economists, well, we don't even go there. Sometimes they seem to be behaving more like astrologers than astronomers with their erratic, erroneous forecasts. You used to be an economist. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I can see why you changed job. And the future. There's widespread fear of either an intolerant secularism or an intolerant Islamism, both wanting to curtail freedom of speech, debate and thought. But this prediction tells us that whatever the next dominant power is, it's only going to operate under the permissive will of a greater power. God is always in charge and always with his people. And what should we do with God's revelation? Well, this episode illustrates how we are clueless without getting God's take on life. It's about, uh, it has about it the ring of truth. And when it was delivered, it was, as on this occasion, miraculously attested. A humble submission like Nebuchadnezzar's would seem to be the only logical thing to do. And a word to unbelievers, should you be one. Do you have a perspective like this? Are you able to see yourself set securely within the context of the past, the present and the future, knowing that it has purpose and direction? Forty years ago, the futurologist Alvin Toffler put his finger on our collective pulse. He wrote, Value systems splinter and crash while the lifeboats of family, church and state are hurled madly about. We are like a ship's crew trapped in a storm and trying to navigate between dangerous reefs without compass or chart. Well, the revelation of the mind of God gives us both a steer and a direction. In case you doubt it, let me point out that this was revealed 
around 580 BC. And most of these things happened hundreds of years after they were spoken about. Even the oldest manuscript that is in existence of Daniel chapter 2 dates from 100 BC, long before the zenith of the Roman Empire and its decline. So it couldn't have been written afterwards. Perhaps you have to concede that this Bible's got more going for it than you imagined. But don't take too much time. Don't mistake God's patience towards us for a change of mind. Like these empires, he brooks no rival to his authority. His empire will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end because then in their detached disobedience, they all did appalling evil but it will itself endure with those who've embraced him forever. And finally, a word to believers. This was the message of hope to the exiles in Babylon, who thought their God may have abandoned them. It was a message of hope to the Maccabees, the Jews who uh, are referred to in, um, in, the, in, in the, um, the Apocrypha. In the days... 160 BC, when under Antiochus Epiphanes IV, to practice Judaism meant death. But that Greek empire of the Seleucids then lasted for less than a decade. It was a message of hope to the early church when Rome fell in 410 to the Visigoths. Augustine in North Africa heard of the sack of Rome, the capital of the empire for the last half a millennium, and he preached a sermon which said, there will be an end to every earthly kingdom, for this world is passing away. This world is but a breath, but do not fear. Your youth shall be renewed like an eagle. Significantly, he's quoting from other words of comfort and hope uttered by the, uttered by the prophet Isaiah to the exiles. And then Augustine went on to write of the failure of that city and the need for another city, the city of God. John Calvin wrote a commentary on the book of Daniel specifically for the Huguenot Protestants being persecuted in the 17th century in France because he felt it was profoundly relevant to their situation. He wrote, whatever was predicted of the changing and vanishing splendors of the ancient monarchies and the perpetual existence of Christ's kingdom is in these days no less useful to us. For God has shown how all earthly powers must fail, and those kings whose sway is most extended shall find by sorrowful experience how horrible a judgment will fall upon them unless they willingly submit to the sovereign reign of Christ. So Christians can be positive about the future. In a world characterised by short-term fixes, we can look to long-term solutions. In a world of pessimism, despondency, anxiety, apathy, lack of direction, we have a sure and certain hope. Jesus in Luke uh, expected in the last days that nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea 
Men will faint from, faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At such times, the characteristic that will stand out is hope. A calm, certain and positive hope. And that's what Daniel and his friends had. And what all who put their trust in Christ and his emerging rule have good reason to display. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your predictions which came to be fulfilled be for us evidence that you love your people and will bring about your good and perfect plans for us forever. Amen.